The reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 32, starting at verses 1 through 14 and 30 through 32. And you can find this in your bulletin, in your Bible, or on your phone. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who should go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath shall burn out, burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I just, uh, I just want to pray just a quick before we we launch into into this today. Uh, God, we need your help. We need your spirit, and not with ready hearts, 
available for whatever you have for us this morning, God, would you, would you speak in this room? Would the glory, would the manifest presence of the living God just be in this place that we might leave as changed people? God, just help me as I speak. Um, a difficult passage, but help us all to hear with ears ready to obey. In your name, amen. Amen. So uh, when Mike asked me to do this, I, I didn't realize how, like, how weird this passage was. Like, this is, thanks Simone for like reading that so, so well. And we're out of time. So thank you so much. Um, I'm out of here. Um, man, what to say, what to say. I first asked Mike, hey, did you ask me this because of Kerrygold? Like the connection of like, is there some like weird calf, cow thing um, going on there. Um, I, I'll be honest, I've got a problem. I've got a lot of problems, actually. Um, but uh, one, of them is, one of them is my uh, obsession with chocolate. Um, is there anybody in here who's just going to be like, yeah, yeah, I got that too. Hey, but you got to understand, I'm from a country that made really, really good chocolate. Sorry, <laughs> look at you all, you're devastated, like devastated. It's true though, isn't it? Like you go to Britain and have Cadbury's, you're like, oh, that's, this stuff in America is like eating a shoe. Listen, if you, if you go, if you just go to Bourneville, just go to Bourneville. If you're ever in Britain, just go there and eat all the chocolate you want. Just fan yourself up on chocolate. I can't get enough of this stuff. I, Amy says I've got a self-control problem. I tell her I don't, I can eat as much chocolate as I want. That's a lot, that takes a lot of self-control to consume that amount of chocolate. We've got this chocolate basket in our shelf and Trader Joe's do this one that's like just milk chocolate. You know those big like, those big ones? I can eat one of those in a day, like a day. I'm not even joking, I can do that. I can do that, if you buy me one, <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll even video it for you. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you've got, hands up if you've got something in your life that you just can't find yourself coming back to over and over again. Have you got something like that, like chocolate or um, broccoli or whatever, <laughs> whatever your thing is, I don't know. Um, uh, hands up if you've got something more serious in your life that you find yourself coming back to over and over again that you wish you didn't. Just, just a couple of people, so you, you just can all sleep through the rest of this then. We're gonna, we're gonna look at a passage where, where God's people do this just over and over again, don't they? We keep finding ourselves back in this place. And, and it's amazing, they're at, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai right now, and what have they seen? They've seen this mountain quake in the presence of the living God. They've seen it shrouded by like smoke and a devouring fire. That's what it says earlier in the book of, of Exodus. And lightning, the sky is dark, lightning is coming out, and these people are trembling at the bottom at just the magnificent, unbelievable, unprecedented glory of God right there in their midst, right there in their midst. But just like chocolate, and it took one night, it took one night to take God's people out of Egypt, but it would take 40 years to take Egypt out of God's people. And over and over again, I find myself at that same place where the things in my life that I, that I wish I, I was done with, I still keep coming back to. I keep coming back to them. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at this text, we're gonna look at Exodus 32, um, and it's long, we didn't read it all, um, and I'll just kind of fly over this um, from the perspective that we're gonna think about this morning. Moses has been up the mountain for uh, about 40 days at this stage. 
Um, and so when the people see in, 30, in 32 verse 1, if you've got a Bible, follow along. You can make notes if you want to do that. Um, and so Moses has been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And what do the people do? They're getting impatient, aren't they? They're getting impatient. So they come to Aaron and they say to him, hey, we've, like, we've just had enough of this like waiting around. Like We're done with this. Like Who even knows what's happened to Moses anyway? Like he's probably just, he probably died. Like, you know, he's probably not even around anymore. So let's do something awesome. Let's get all of the gold we have. We're gonna make this giant cow. I don't know why, like there's way better things, but uh, cow is what they settled on in the meeting that they had. And they're like, let's build this altar. Let's make for ourselves gods who we can see, who we can serve, who will lead us from this place to the next place that we may follow all the days of our lives. Let's make them for ourselves. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? Like, it's mad. Back to the chocolate basket again. And so then they, they do this. Aaron, Aaron has a big collection. They collect all the gold. And for some, they had a furnace um, just sitting there in the desert with them. And they smelt all the gold and fashioned this golden calf. And um, they declare then the next day is going to be a day of feasting and of celebration and of worship and of buying down to this, to this idol that they created, right? And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did. And it's unbelievable how quickly these people go from worshiping the living God to just complete disregard. They, they knew, they knew. And so I've, I've, I've just entitled this message, A Wild Disregard and Extravagant Mercy. And we're going to think right now just about the wild disregard of, of what these people are doing and what's going on in their hearts that, that causes them to do that. And, and so it's amazing how quickly these folks go from worshiping God, seeing like, guys, do you, do you remember what they saw? From Egypt, they saw miracle after miracle. They saw the mighty hand of God lead them out of Egypt. They saw the unbelievable glory of God part the Red Sea, destroy an army, have a most lit worship service ever. They saw fried chicken and bread come down from, bis chicken biscuits come down from heaven. Buffet every day. They had water from a rock time and time again. What was in front of them, behind them, a pillar of fire and smoke, the visible presence of God continually with them. And what did they do? They decide they want something else. They decide they want something else. It's crazy. This is not forgetfulness. This is complete disregard. This is wild disregard. Because not only had God commanded it in, in, the second, in the second commandment, we're gonna have a look at that just in a little bit, but they had promised God in chapter 24, oh yeah, God, we'll do everything you commanded. You are amazing. You're the greatest God ever. We'll obey you till the cows come home. I didn't mean to do that, but there you go, kind. Um, and uh, what I know to be true that I wish wasn't true, and I'll say it again, is that I so often find myself doing the same thing. I see God at work, I experience his power, I experience a moment of worship, and, and I come to church and I say stuff like, hey God, I want, I want to do this, I'm ready to yield everything in my life over to you once again, or I'm ready to obey once again, and what do I do? I leave and I forget and I disregard the God who called me and I create for myself something else in the place of God, in the place of God. Anyone else do that? Yeah? So what's going on? Well, how do these people disregard God so easily? Uh, you gotta remember, they've been in Egypt and they're surrounded in Canaan now by cultures, by groups of people who make all these kinds of gods for their, 
for their own benefit. You know, they, they bow down to all kinds of things. And so these people have, have literally for 40 years or however long they lived in Egypt, this generation, you know, they've been surrounded by a culture that created gods to bow down and worship. That's all they've known. That's all they've known. These people wanted a God they could see. They wanted a God they could understand. And the living God, Yahweh, was too risky. He was too uncomfortable. So what did they want? They wanted a God they could manipulate. They wanted a God they could tame. They wanted God for who? For themselves. They wanted God to be whoever they wanted him to be. I want you to hear the gravity of that. They wanted God to be whoever they wanted him to be. So rather than yielding to God in faith as creator who loves them and that they belong to, they create a God who exists for themselves, for their purposes, for their agenda, for their lifestyle. We do this too. We try and mold God into our own image. We change him to meet our expectations, our desires, our circumstances, and it's all centered around who? It's all centered around us rather than the one that our lives are for, the one who created us. Our hearts are continually drawn to shape God to our liking, to make him convenient to obey or to ignore. And folks, he's not the God we want him to be. He's not, and he won't be. He is the God he chooses to reveal himself to be. He is the God he says he is. And you might not be comfortable with all of it, but he's still God. He's still God. When we're doing this, we are not only worshiping God, but ourselves, like I said, rather than the one that um, he created us for himself. And we're living, when we live as though God exists for us, when we're living as though he exists to serve our purposes and our agenda, we are creating our own golden calf. We're creating our own golden calf. And I know a bunch of guys standing up here in, in the last few weeks have talked about idolatry. Um, and I'm not gonna touch on the same stuff that they, they touched on. But it will talk about this just a little bit more. Because when, when I was on camp a while ago, um, a long time, not the, not the most recent one, but there was a guy, um, it was in, I think we were in uh, like Tennessee or Chattanooga or somewhere like that. And some kid comes up to me at camp and he's like, why are you speaking in that stupid voice? I was like, that's, I mean, that, that's my accent. I mean, that's, he's like, no, it's not stupid. And I was like, well, it, it might be stupid, but that's, that's the way I talk. And he's like, no, it's not a real accent. Like, I'm like, who are you, you little sweat? Come here, hey. And that's not what happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that kind of stuff? Um, he doesn't get to tell me who I am. He doesn't get to tell me what I'm like, and we don't get to do that with God. And when we do, when we create our golden calves like this, when we live as though God exists for our purposes, agenda, or our lifestyle, it affects how we worship, it affects how we follow him, and it affects what our faith is in. Well, how it affects our worship is we don't worship him as he reveals himself to be. Or we bring him an offering that's empty, it's disengaged. We turn up the church and we just sing some songs. We don't bring God our hearts. But if we truly understand the glory, the amazing splendor of who, we, of who he is, we worship him fully and freely with everything we've got. It affects how we worship, how we, how we follow him. This is big, right? Because what do, what do we then do with this when we create our own golden calves? We want God, we want the parts of following Jesus that just suit us. 
We don't want to follow him if it's uncomfortable or if it's inconvenient. We want him to approve our lifestyle, our decisions, our choices. We don't seek him. We want a God who doesn't get in the way of our lives and what we want to do in our lives. It affects how we worship, how we follow Jesus, and lastly, what our faith is in. We live as though God, his promises, his provision or goodness is not enough. And it's not just doubting God, because that's one thing and that's okay, but it's choosing to believe that God is not who he says he is. It's choosing to believe that God is not loving, he is not caring, he is not faithful, and he is not worth us giving our lives in surrender to. It's creating for ourselves God based on our circumstances, based on our feelings, rather than faith in who he says he is. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of God are true, even if our lives tell us otherwise. And as they create an image of the God they wanted Yahweh to be, they replace the living God with something insignificant, powerless, and empty. They disregarded the glory of God for junk, for junk. When we live as though God exists for us or the things in this world are more worthy of our lives, we replace a Christ-centered life with a life centered around ourselves. And God calls that idolatry. When Anna was, um, when Anna was a, a, a smaller baby, if you've had a baby or kid, you know, they like, you catch them eating all kinds of things, don't you? You know, licking all kinds of things and just goodness knows what's going on in their head. And um, we prepare all these delicious things like, um, like avocados. Um, don't know why I picked that. Um, but we like, we prepare her food, right? Uh, and I'll be like, no, no, I won't have the avocado. No, I won't have this cheese sandwich. Mm, no, no, I won't have that. And then later on we catch her like, just trying to eat a clump of dust or like the veneer off the cupboard. And these are all true things that like I caught her eating. Uh, I don't want to eat your sweet potato, but I'll eat these leaves that I've just found on the, on the floor. I mean, she might be on to something, but I don't think she is. Um, and, and this is what we do with, with idolatry, isn't it? Like I just said, we replace the glory of, of, of the living God with something that's empty. It's insignificant. It's, it's junk, isn't it? It's junk. That's exactly what we're doing. You see, an idol is anything in our lives that steals our awe and our attention from him alone. An idol is anything that steals the awe and attention that, is worth, that we ought to put onto the living God and, and we put it on all, all these other things that are, that are not worthy of it. Idols are anything that have captured our attention, our awe, more than God has. I want you to hear that. Because there's things in your life and there's things in my life that, that, have, that have got the awe and attention that should be on, on God alone. It should be on God alone. It shouldn't be ours to, to decide who it goes to. Tim Keller, I love this quote, says, idolatry is not just a failure to, to disobey or to obey God, sorry, disregard. It's a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. So see, you look at this example, and, and, and they didn't want Yahweh to be who he was. He was too uncomfortable. They wanted a God who they could see, who was tame, they could look at and, and do whatever they wanted with. Right? So what did they do? They took their awe off, right? The mountain's still going. You picture this. The mountain's still got the smoke, the fire going on it. And they see it. It's right there. 
right there, but they look down and decide they want something different. They take their awe, their attention off the thing that they had previously trembled before, and they create this golden calf, and they give this junk their awe, their attention. Perhaps for you, it's success. You know, let's, let's, let's get real practical. What, what idols, what things have you created in your life that you're choosing to buy your life to? Maybe it's popularity, maybe for, for not necessarily some of you younger folks, but like maybe it's your social media presence. And I can guarantee the amount of time you spend thinking or giving attention or your wide-eyed wonder to, that's, that's probably gonna be pretty close to what's captured your heart. Maybe it's the next promotion. Maybe it's even your family or your kids. What is it in your life? What is it in your life that has become an idol? Imagine if Anna replaced me for a rock. That could happen one day, actually. And um, knowing, knowing Anna, um, while we were away on camp, while we were away on camp, um, Anna fell in love with um, all the students and, and all, the, all the leaders there. And um, Lydia and Sam, like, um, Anna flipping loves those girls so much. And um, I one day asked, I asked Lydia, uh, or I asked Anna, I was like, hey, do you like Lydia more than Daddy? You seem to be spending more time with her. She's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> All right, I'm okay, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm sure I'm you. Um, here, here's, the, here's the thing. Um, remember the second commandment? If, if you have a Bible um, on you, just flip back to uh, Exodus 20. And I'll tell you the reason why I shared that in a second. And uh, this is the second commandment. He says, in the first, you'll have no other gods before me. In the second, he says, you'll not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, um, for the, I the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for Anna. You know, she, she'll love all these other people, but no one will ever be her dad. No one will ever love her quite as much as her dad. And I'm so jealous for Anna because every, every single day, what do I want for Anna? I want her to know that her dad loves her every second of that day. She can't do anything to unearn that. I'm so jealous for her heart because I love her. God's not jealous for you because he wants to make your life like wrecked. He's jealous for you because he loves you. He gives you the second commandment. He says, don't give your life, your, all your attention to all this junk. Why? Because I'm jealous for your heart. Because I love you too much. I love you way, way too much. God is jealous over everything for relationship with you. Right? That's what he created you for. That's the whole point of the Exodus. Um, one night it took for, for God's people to be saved from Egypt. Into what? Relationship with the living God. And the golden calf and every idol in our lives is so devastating to the heart of God because it's not him. Because it's not him. It's not a relationship with him. And, and, and let me just tell you, remind you, you can't have a relationship with that thing in your life that you're bound down to. That awe, attention thing that you're giving your heart to. 
or that idea that you've created that you want God to be rather than who he says he is, all of that idolatry, you can't have a relationship with that. You can with God. You can with the God of promise. And we don't dwell anymore in a desert, do we? Hopefully not. Um, um, You might do. I don't know what part of town that is. I haven't been there. But now, but now, the Spirit of God, this is mad. In James chapter four, five to eight, um, and I'm just gonna reach verse five, but it says this, he yearn, or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? We're not in a desert with a pillar of fire or cloud anymore, what are we? People brought back by the blood of Jesus with the spirit of the living God within us. And he says, I'm jealous for your life, for your worship, for your heart, because my presence now lives within you. It's amazing. So let's, uh, let's just keep going because we gotta, we gotta wrap this thing up. And uh, as we go um, further, these people do all they said they were gonna do. And then in verse seven, God apparently sees this going on. It's not as if he, he was missing this or like having a chat with Moses so he doesn't really see it. And um, seven and chapter 32 says, uh, God goes to Moses, he says, go down for your people whom you've brought out from the land have corrupted themselves. And, and God says, they've turned aside from me, the living God. They've created this idol to bow down to. And now leave me alone that my wrath might consume this people. Do you get what's going on? The wild disregard of this people has a cost. And God says, my wrath is burning hot towards them and I'm about to consume them. And then we have this amazing moment and don't ask me all of the, because this is one of those bits I don't understand really about God. Um, but then Moses goes to God, he falls on his knees and he says, God, 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 please don't do this to your people. I know they've sinned, I know they've acted wickedly, but these are your people that you brought out of Egypt. You made a promise that you would do this, that you would make a great nation. You made a promise to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, please forgive them, fulfill your promise. But they deserve what? To be cut off, didn't they? They deserve for wild disregard to be cut off from a relationship with the living God. And then God replies, I will not bring disaster on this people. We're gonna talk about that in just a second with uh, extravagant mercy. I don't know if you're like me when you go to a restaurant, but I um, sometimes get like choice, like just anxiety. Um, when it's narrowed down to two things, like do I want the seafood boil or the, the burger, quite different things, isn't it? So your night's gonna be completely different, depending on nobody else feel it. And then when the server comes over, and what you really wanna ask is for more time, but you can't, you've used up all your time. And um, and they say, what do, you, what do you want? And in that moment, you just gotta be like. <laughs> and then uh, you see your wife's mail and you're devastated because she picked the better one. And then, um, um, see, God, God doesn't change his mind. He's not, he's not gonna destroy them. And then because Moses was like, oh God, don't destroy them. He's like, oh, all right then, yeah, yeah, I'll change my mind. God doesn't change his mind like we do. He doesn't struggle with a choice, but everything he does, every activity he does is consistent with who he says he is. His justice required, his justice required a, a punishment, a penalty, something to be paid for sin, for this wild disregard. But what else do we know to be true about God? That there's extravagant mercy. There's extravagant mercy. It's not that one cancels the other one out. It's that God is consistent in all of his ways, in his character. 
in every mess that God's people make, what never changes, the never failing, never ending, relentless goodness of God to a people who never deserved it. So Moses comes down the mountain, and uh, we didn't read this bit out, but he has a chat with Aaron. He says, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? And they, uh, he actually burns this golden calf up. He grinds it down, and then I, I don't know why he does this, but he makes all the people drink it, um, which is very, very bizarre, but, but really communicating the gravity of, of what's going on here. And Moses asks Aaron, like, what happened here? Like, we left you in charge for, like, 40 days, okay, but, but what happened here? Um, and Aaron doesn't own it, does he? If you know this story, Aaron should have fallen on his knees and goes, man, I, I like blew it big time, I blew it. He starts making excuses. He's like, oh, but the people that you gave to me, they made me do it, and you know, it wasn't really my fault. And it's, it's even funny how it's worded in here, because um, Aaron says, well, we just like threw loads of gold into the fire and this thing popped out. Um, it's like, that doesn't happen. I, nothing has ever done that in the history of furnaces or, I, <laughs> I don't know, except Thor's hammer. That was amazing. Um, and, um, <laughs> and he makes all of these excuses. He blames instead of owning, owning the broken, wild disregard. That, that he was responsible for? Well, perhaps there are idols in your life that God's calling you to deal with. Maybe he's brought to mind, even, even in this moment, something in your life that you've been buying down to, that you've created for yourself, that's stolen the awe and attention that rightly is only for God and God alone. And Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come. Because God actually, uh, we're gonna see, his extravagant mercy does not cut his people off, but does something even more, even more extraordinary that, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. And so you might need to just bring your awe and attention back to the living God this morning. And as we bring, as we come to God and we don't blame, we don't make excuses, we say, hey, this has been an idol in my life, this has been a golden calf I've created. We don't find a God ready to cut us off. We find a God who is extravagant in mercy. Extravagant in mercy. So Moses gathers uh, the people the following day. Simone read this out in, in verse 30, uh, uh, the 35. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They made for themselves God, uh, gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses gathers the people and he says, Hey, listen, like what you did is, is a big deal. It's really, really big. You've done something that deserves for you to be cut off from a relationship with the living God. And so he goes up to God he goes up to God, and before he goes up, he says, perhaps, perhaps God could offer forgiveness. Just maybe there's a shot that God might forgive us. Just maybe there's a shot. And he goes up and he says, God, would you forgive these people this great sin? If it's too much, I get it. And if that's the case, then take me instead. Did you hear that? Blot my name out of the book. Take me instead. If, if that's what it costs to forgive these people, take me instead. Take me instead. Forgive them at my expense. For the sake of your name, would you extend 
your extravagant mercy. Moses is asking God to show these people mercy and he's willing to pay whatever it takes to do that. Man, that's incredible, that. That's incredible. So God responds, well, those who are guilty will live in the consequence of, of their sin and, and we don't have time to go into it, but there is some very hard stuff in that passage to deal with um, regarding how God um, has some of his judgment expressed through some people. Um, but he says, but go down and lead these people to the place where I called you. God is saying, I will not abandon them. I'll not cut them off. My great love, my extravagant mercy means that I will not forsake them and I will go before them and I will never leave them. It's amazing. That is incredible. That's extravagant mercy. See, mercy is when God does not give us what, what we deserve, right? Because what do we deserve for our brokenness, for our moments where we've bowed our lives to things that are not worthy of it? We do not deserve a relationship with the holy God who created us for himself. But mercy says, hey, perhaps, perhaps there's a way. Mercy is the undeserved extravagant goodness of God to those who never deserved a moment of it. And because of God's extravagant mercy this morning, we have an opportunity to, to have our lives changed. Mercy is for those that, who know that they need God who know that they need the forgiving power of Jesus at, at work in their life. And his mercy is, and this is what's beautiful, his mercy is bigger than your brokenness. It's bigger than your shame. It's bigger than your failure. It's bigger than any wild disregard that you might think disqualifies you from a relationship with God. Because what does it say in, in James um, chapter two, verse 13, the second half of that, it says mercy what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where we deserve judgment Mercy won, mercy had the victory, mercy was greater, mercy went further. No brokenness, no failure would ever stop the extravagant mercy of God coming on our behalf. God says, or sorry, Moses says um, to God, hey, order the people, perhaps there's a way. Perhaps there's a way. I'll pay whatever it costs for their forgiveness. And in the heavenly realm, there was someone else who uttered that as well. Jesus said those same things. Hey, if there's a way to forgive these people, I'm, I'll do it, whatever it takes. Let my name be blotted out if it, means, if it means these people can be forgiven. And he came down, didn't he? He came down. The Holy One was, was, was flesh and dwelt among us. And he interacted with broken people, with messed up lives, with messed up stories, who, who saw Jesus and thought, perhaps, maybe I might have a shot at the mercy, at the forgiveness of God too. Just maybe he might have just come for me. Just maybe I might be able to receive mercy. And just maybe this morning, you might have come in this room and you might, you might need to hear this, that mercy, the extravagant mercy of God, is available for you to receive today. See, those who come in faith find mercy for every sin, every wild disregard, every idol we've created in our lives. And this mercy changes everything. Mercy says when there was no other way, I made a way. I had a, um, I had a friend who, um, 
This was back in, in university, and if, if you're in youth, you have heard this story before. Um, his name was John Belling, um, a, a really good friend, really good worship leader, and I was in the same like year as him uh, at university, and their family was all from China. And uh, one summer, they vacation out there, and uh, they're at the beach, you know, their whole family, extended family, and John's dad, and his dad's brother, so John's uncle, you know, they're big families, and um, just all having an amazing time at, at the beach. And um, uh, on one particular day, um, John's uncle got into trouble in, in the water, uh, and you know how, how crazy these uh, riptides, these currents can be, and he gets into trouble on, on one of the beaches, and um, he's really struggling, um, and he's losing a lot of energy, and um, fighting to just get back to shore. Um, John's dad sees this going on uh, a little bit, a little bit later than anyone wished, and, and so John's dad runs into the sea as fast as he can, and he just runs to his brother, and he, and he grabs him, and with every ounce of effort John's dad could manage, he, he, he brings his brother to a place where his brother could finally get out, um, and at the same time in doing that, he lost all his energy, all his reserves, adrenaline gone, and, and he gets washed out, and, and he loses his life that day. And um, what do you do? What, what do you do? But I remember John talking about that one night as he led us all in worship, how, how, how that's what the living God did for us. And I never forgot that. How in mercy we have a God who said, I'll do it. If it costs me everything, I'll do it. If it costs me everything, I'll cross this universe and I, I'll come looking for those who never deserved a relationship with God in the first place, but because they cried out of mercy, because of my great mercy, I want to give them new life. And that's what Jesus has done for you. And as he's walking up the mountain, he says, God, is there another way? As Jesus is carrying this cross on his back, he says, is there, is there another way? Is there another way? And all of heaven is silent because for, for mercy to be extended, someone had to pay. And his name is Jesus. And 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 says, blessed be the God our Father, and he says all of these things, but what he says, by the great mercy of God, we've been brought back because of Jesus. Whatever wild disregard, whatever idol, whatever broken thing, whatever thing you keep coming back to in your life, whatever you think is too big, God says, hey, my mercy's greater. It's more extravagant. It's bigger. The jealous heart of God cost him more than it ever asks of you. Let me just say that again. The jealous heart of God cost him way more than it ever asks of you because he loves you. Lord, help us to let go of things that we've created to buy our lives to. We wanna love you. We wanna live for you alone. And so if there's anything right now that demands our awe and attention, it's, it's you, it's you. 
The one who with extravagant and undeserved mercy comes our way and loses it all on the cross so that we might have life, so that we might have new life, so that we might let go of those things that have captured our hearts that are no longer worthy of it. And so the death of Jesus and the empty grave means that we have a reason to worship you this morning because we, through the extravagant mercy of the living God, had one who went up the mountain on our behalf, paid it all so that we could be free. What mercy, what mercy. You're worthy of all of our attention. You're worthy of all of our awe. And we lift you up as the one who has triumphed over this, over the grave, over sin forever. On our behalf and in his name we prayed, amen.